You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. We are the Sacred Collective. All are respected, all are heard, and all are welcomed. Join us. Thank you for tuning in to the Sacred Collective. Uh, we have a pretty awesome interview um, coming up here tonight. Um, we're interviewing the Reverend Kathy Itzen, who's a pastor of the United Church of Christ, who, which is a denomination that I'm a part of and currently a member in discernment with. If you've heard us um, talk about that before, um, and obviously if you've listened to the Reverend John Dorhauer, um, when we interviewed him back in June, um, we're all part of that denomination. So let's jump right into it. Uh, welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, a little backstory. Kathy uh, was the pastor I interned under at your church. Gosh, how long ago was that? Like three years ago? Yeah, about that. Uh, yeah, and even more backstory is I was working overnights at the time at a college. And so after working all night, going home, sleeping for like three hours, I would get up and come into church very, very tired. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Kathy, just... Maybe give like a brief bio about yourself, like where you're from, you know, kind of like your background, your upbringing, kind of however much little or as much as you want to say. All right. First of all, we were very impressed with Brian, how, what a good job he did when he came in after like no sleep. <laughs> Thank you. It would have been a good job if you'd had a lot of sleep and knowing that you didn't have any made it amazing. It was a freaking miracle, Brian. A freaking miracle. I tried. Okay. So I was, uh, my mom is congregational, which is actually what formed the UCC, Congregational, another thing, United Church of Christ. Um, and my dad was Catholic, so I am the oldest of five, and we were raised Catholic because in those days that was the deal. That's kind of what you had to promise to do. And so it, it was a kind of a normal, I would say, Catholic family where you know you go to church on Sunday, we go to religious education classes, and that was, you know, said prayers before bed, you know, kind mm-hmm. of your normal. But not overly religious, I wouldn't think. Um, but my parents would talk about God in our everyday lives, like going for a walk or, you know, what cool things God made. I mean, it was part of our lives. And I grew up and thought I wanted to be a nun. And uh, the reason I wanted to be a nun was because I thought I knew some nuns, and they were awesome women that were doing really cool things in the world. And so they would get a lot of them would... Uh, get more advanced degrees and like they were able to go wherever they were needed in the world to um, deal with whatever crises were going on so like I had friends who were like they're nurses and they get sent to Guatemala and El Salvador and Africa and you know and other people were teachers and other people were parish workers working for justice and going to these places usually where there was a lot of poverty and trying to make the world a better place and I thought that was awesome so um, I thought that was the best way for me to to do things so I wasn't really excited about not having a family because I always thought having a lot of kids would be cool but um, I did like the idea of serving God by making the world better and that this would be a great thing to do so I um, went to college and got a degree in ministry and worked for the Catholic Church as religious ed director for about three years and during that time, I also halfway finished a master's degree because um, the deal in Minneapolis, the Diocese of Minneapolis, was if you're working for a church full-time, you could get a third-off graduate school. 
tuition. And I was like, hey, I'm single, I'm young, who ever regrets having more education? So what the heck? And so I just kind of did that at nights. And then um, when I was about halfway done with the master's degree, had worked for about three years, I decided to join the Franciscans. And the Franciscans are ones that, uh, you know, you follow Jesus, but also the ones that you think of with St. Francis of Assisi, who's the guy who respects the animals and creation and all of that. And so they're known for working, going out, meeting people's needs, working with people who are poor. And I just thought that was all cool. So... I did that, and meanwhile, I knew that I was gay, and that was not an issue um, because you're presumably going to be celibate. You take vows of celibacy, and even though, as a sister, there's like um, nine years, you're six to nine years, different stages before you actually have final vows, and so you start out without any vows, but you're expected to live the life and see how it fits, and then after mm. a year or so, you get joined into the community, and you. Take tempor- you, you're a novice for two years. Mm. Then at the end of that, you can take temporary vows. That can be for three years. And at the end of that three years, you can renew them or for another three years, or you can make final. So you've been oh. there at least six years before you make any kind of final vows. Wow. So, um, so I was in my first year, and I thought the director of the candidates, which is what I was, was completely awesome. And that was Carol Anderson. So I was aware that I was falling in love with Carol. So and and like in the community, part some of the sisters knew I was gay. Like the deal was, I'm going to tell the people that it would make a difference to who are helping me discern different parts of my life, and I'm not going to tell everybody else. And that's kind of how I'm living anyway. At that point, was you know if it was relevant, I'd mention it to people, and if it wasn't relevant, I wouldn't. And so this was in the 80s, the early 80s, mid 80s, and so it was kind of a new thing i mean it wasn't new but it wasn't people didn't talk right. about it a lot either it was just starting to be talked about so carol knew i was gay um and i started falling in love with her and it became pretty clear to me that i was falling in love with her so i went to another nun and said i don't know what to do because i'm falling in love and uh i and she was a counselor and i said i i really like her I'd like to, and she said, what would you like to do? I said, well, I'd like to tell her. And because she's the director over me, she's the person I'd go to who helps me make decisions, discern parts of my life, that would be a normal thing to tell her this. But I'm afraid that by doing that, I'd lose the great friendship we've already got because she might say as another nun, oh, geez, you know, we need to probably put some space between us and maybe we shouldn't be living in the same house with all these other sisters. Maybe you should live in a different house or whatever. So I was, so... So my the counselor said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to tell her, but I'm afraid of what will happen if I do. Sorry, could that have gotten you, so that could not have gotten you, like, kicked out? Or, no, because uh, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Right, You right. know, uh-huh. but, but it so would be... So preference couldn't, it, preference couldn't get you, I don't know what the, not kicked out, I don't know what the term is. No, at that time, um, like, I was, I was open with the people that were deciding whether or not I could even start out sure. becoming okay. a sister which okay. I did start out and uh-huh. I said yeah you know I'm uh-huh. gay and uh-huh. I'm cool with that and they were like well you know you need to be celibate and I was like right I know okay. that oh, hello I mean you know most I mean at that time you would know that people who were nuns so um, there would be some communities who wouldn't want you mm-hmm. but this one was was okay, okay. with that you know and it doesn't mean every single little old nun was but in general you know it's like fine as long as you're celibate right. and you're able to live it cool and so so this nun says 
well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to tell her, but I'm afraid what will happen if I do. And she said, well, do you want to go through your life making decisions based on your choice of what you want to do or based on the fear of what will happen if you do what you want to do? Hmm. And I thought that was really good advice. And that stuck by me for the rest of my life. And I've always tried to make decisions around that, like doing what it is I really want to do, not making choices out of fear. And that's actually gotten me a long ways, which is good. So I, uh, so I said to Carol, I need to talk to you. And, and I've got something I need to tell you. And she's like, okay, well, how about, you know, after church, because you go to church every morning, how about after church tomorrow? And I said, okay, cool. So we go to church. I'm really nervous. And, uh, the, and then we afterwards we go visit. I said, well, I don't know what to say here because um, I'm, it's becoming really clear to me I'm falling in love with you. And she said, well, that's going to make things really tough because I know for sure I'm in love with you. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so then... Over the next, like, year, we both tried to discern separately what we will do with that. Because I was new. I'd left a job. I wasn't going to get that job back, but I could get another job working for the church back. You know, um, I I was okay. Carol, though, is 10 years older than me, so she'd been a nun for 17 years at that point. Oh, wow. She was already not only finally vowed, but she was in a, you know, a um, responsible position. She was in charge of me, the candidates, um, who are looking at joining the community. And so she's like on the board and all this stuff. So she's like in the leadership circle of the sisters there. So it was a bigger deal for her. So I wanted to make sure, I mean, I wanted us to leave together, but I didn't want to, I didn't want her to leave unless she was really sure that's what she wanted to do because she was giving up a lot more than me. And also being 10 years older than me, her parents were 10 years older than me. And like my brothers and sisters were probably the first wave of people who would think this was probably okay. Mm. The generation, even 10 years older, 15 years older, 20 years older, would have a lot harder time with it. So I knew like my brothers and sisters would basically be cool, but hers would not be. And that, in fact, was true. You know, it was just like mm. that much older and Catholic was makes you more kind of conservative. So anyhow, so we took like almost a year trying to figure that out. Her counselor, my counselor, who were both nuns, separate nuns, and... Um, reach the decision separately to leave together. Mm-hmm. And so we did. And um, so we left, and, and that, was, that was in 1986. And then um, over the first couple of years, we decided we wanted to have a family. Um, we both were clearly wanting to adopt, and I thought it would be neat to have a child as well biologically. And so we adopted our first daughter as an infant, and she was from Texas. But this took a while because at that time, some adoption agencies agreed to meet with us off the record. But they said, you know, as a gay couple, if you are open about being gay, you will not be able to adopt. There is no one who will let oh, you wow. adopt. And that was true. And um, so Carol went as a single person first because a lot of adoption agencies, you have to be no more than a certain age older than the people you adopt. Mm-hmm. So since she was 10 years older than me to begin with, it made sense for her to do that first. So she got our daughter, Annie. and But, I mean, we knew it was, we were, our families realized this was a, a double adoption, but we could legally only one of us adopt. And then three years later, I gave birth to Tim. And by that time, you could do a double adoption. But the only way you could do that was if I would sign off my natural rights to Tim. And so I 
had to legally sign that I was not his natural mother. I mean, like, everybody knew I was a natural but I had to sign off as his natural mother in order for Carol to be able to adopt him. So we are both legally oh. his adoptive parents. Interesting. Because a mother couldn't be the natural mother and have an adoptive mother legally at that time. Hmm. So that was, like, a tricky thing. And so, so that happened. And meanwhile, we'd been doing foster care for disadvantaged kids, disabled kids like that. And so... Um, we had another foster daughter at that time, a teenager who was a, a black um, lesbian teenager. That was like they couldn't find homes for because who wants, at that time, nobody would want a, a gay <clears throat> teen. So then um, we ended up having two little foster boys. And so we had four kids, uh, four and under, and um, had them for a couple years. And then they were adopted, and we decided to adopt our daughter who um, our first daughter is African-American. Tim is, I gave birth to, is Panamanian. Our next daughter also is African-American, and she has some special needs. She has she has a little cerebral palsy and also mm-hmm. developmentally delayed. And so then we thought, okay, we're done. And then um, later on, we got another, um, another child who was 13 at the time that we had got him and 16, and we adopted him. So he actually is our last adoption, but he's older than the others. Okay. So... Wow. Anyway, so that's how we got our kids. So all of those happened when Carol and I had left the commun- the convent and um, both gotten jobs. She's a nurse. She was a um, childbirth nurse, OBGYN. But after a few years of doing that, she had done that really for quite a lot while before I met her, and then did that for another, say, five years, and then moved into um, hospice care. Well, not hospice yet. She worked for Minnesota AIDS Project. Um, and so we both had tons of friends who were um, had pe- people with AIDS. And she did that for a long time and then um, moved into hospice. So she's a hospice. She's been a hospice nurse forever. So, And then I worked for the church, and I got a job at, after I worked for another church for a couple of years. And then um, when we started adopting children, we decided I needed to get a job closer to home at a church, and we worked at St. Joan of Arc, which was a great community. And that's where I worked when we got all four of our children. I was there for 20 years. Wow. So that's the first, that's like chapter one and two and three. Yeah. There's so many questions I think yeah. I ask. Caleb, do you? I, I did have a question. Um, this is kind of personal. If you don't want to answer, you obviously don't have to. I was just curious, like what, um, you, you said you were falling in love because obviously there were, you had committed or you were in the process of committing to being a nun. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot on the line there. And so I'm just curious what, um, what was what what was so strong about your attraction? Was it was it just uh, obviously you're very? What, it sounds like what attracted you to um, wanting to be a nun uh, has a lot to do with you know being compassionate and caring. Yeah, and it sounds like that bled into all the the adoption and the foster care and things like that. It, were, were those traits that you that you saw in Carol that attracted you so much to her? Um, she's strong. She's really strong, and all of the values that I have were her exact values too Uh and we complemented each other a lot in that like she's really practical and i'm probably more excited Uh let's go do this Uh and and um so we really balanced each other really well um but i think her strong commitment to justice and god Uh um and She's awesome. As one of the people at church said, she is just a little bundle of awesome. <laughs> and she is. Agreed. You know? yeah. Agreed. Nice. And I, 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 but I was aware 
like I was actually sitting in church at like 6.30 in the morning, and um, Carol was playing guitar, mm. and I'm sitting in the pews. And I just thought, she's so stunning. Mm. And I just thought, everybody has got to be noticing how stunning she is. And so I like I look around thinking everybody's going to be staring at Carol because she's so awesome. <laughs> and uh, in fact, all of them are like looking at their Bibles, praying their rosary, looking at their toes, looking at the priest, mm. whatever. And I was like, duh, they're all nuns. Of course they're not looking at Carol. They're <laughs> praying. You know, we're in the middle of Mass here. Right. So um, it was just like, oh, Kathy. Mm. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Falling in love. So, wow. yeah. And then, I mean, it was kind of, it was like a backwards relationship in that because you're in a community together, you start out talking about really deep values, you know, mm-hmm. your commitment. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And it so your conversations are right away about God and deep right. values. And only later, like after we left, it was like, oh, you like that? I like that What's too. Your favorite food, by oh the way? my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. It's like, it's like a year later, we're finding yeah. out that really we're really compatible in terms of our interests. Interesting. What we like with our lives and our taste and everything. That's um, because first of all, it's like you're right away. Oh, who's your favorite hero? What do you, what do you like about him? Who's mm-hmm. the favorite person you like? That you know, it, it's like and uh, justice in South America mm-hmm. and Ecuador. You know, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. a it was like a backwards relationship. Okay. Yeah, and then it was like you know you don't have any money because you are poor. You take vows of poverty, so right. it's sort of yeah. like like well if I you go win like. If I had money, I'd buy that for you. Well, if I had money, I'd buy that for you. you know? And so it's like your dates are a little backwards. Mm-hmm. Not, not actually dates, but... Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit ignorant to uh, Catholic culture, and especially like in the specific environment that you're talking about and in, and in the, the time frame that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, would, it, would do you think it would have been more or less of a you know, scandalous, quote-unquote, situation uh, if a priest and a nun fell in love or if two priests fell in love? Um, it would probably be, I think because it was, I mean, I think like you've got two things going on. One is you've got people who were previously going to be or were already committed to a celibate mm-hmm. lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. Yeah. And then you've got the gay thing. Right. So I think it would be, I'm guessing that it would probably be a little less maybe if it was heterosexual, yeah. you know. Um, but on the other hand, you've got priests who are kind of held in more esteem and power in a lot of Catholics' minds right. than nuns are. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's complicated, huh? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, the community was really good. We did not tell everybody because, like I say, your you know eighty two year old nuns are not going to have a, I mean, are going to be just like eighty two year old anybody else, you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. so um, we told the people in leadership that needed to know, and the community president was great. She was just like wanting to make sure that it wasn't just like a puppy love, and I was going to ditch her, you know. And so she was like, "Are you really? Do you know the difference? And do you know this is really it? Because I don't want to see, you know, we love you, but we've loved Carol for seventeen years, and we don't want to, you know, right. we don't want to see her hurt." And it was like, "No, this is as good as we know it is." And and so then she gave us. I mean, nuns, you don't have anything, and so I'd given my stuff away when I joined the convent. Carol had never had it to begin with because. In those days, you joined right after high school. Mm. My By the time I did, it was like, well, you work for a while, you live on your own, you know what's going on in the world, and then you join. So mm. I had not had a lot, because it was about three years after I was in college, three or four years, but it was like, you know, I had some furniture, I had a car, I mm. had, you know, and so I'd given it all away. So we're starting from nothing. Mm. And so the um, president, the sister president, was like, okay, well, I... They had like a barn where they keep stuff for the sisters. Like, so if you move from one house to another and you need plates or you need furniture, or you move from a big place to a small place, you put your extras in there and then all the sisters share it to anybody. And so she's like, you can go in there and if you need some plates, here, take these plates. And 
the sisters put together a quilt here, and so you can have this quilt, and I got this radio for you know, I mean, it was just like mm-hmm. this different stuff, which was really cool because it was like they were doing what they could, you know, to support us with having nothing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and they were like, we'll co-sign on a car for Carol, and, you know, so they um, they were really good. Cool. Yeah. Talking about a leap of faith. Right. I mean, because, like, we were just talking over here about, like, like sometimes when you just where you feel like you don't know what to do or what's the next point i've even dealt with that somewhat in my calling and in my ministry but to to see what like you were saying kathy what you had to not go through but just realizing that like you had nothing and when you and carol had when you guys left when you made that conscious decision to leave like most people it would be like i have my car i could find a place right away or whatever you guys didn't have that so that would pet to me i'm the kind of person that would petrify me i would be so like i don't know what to do but just to to see the awesomeness of how you both had this like leap of faith and you're like well we love each other that's what we have we have god and let's just jump into this yeah we did however that's going to turn out i mean that then that's a reason why i think i mean yes all love stories are important to people but when you told me you know the the 10 minute version before um, like I was like, this is fantastic. And then when I wanted to interview you, cause I was just like this, your guys' story is incredible and I want people to hear it because I think it's amazing on so many levels. And the one thing that you had said, well, like the, what was it? Like the director, mm-hmm. um, I was like, you don't want to live always questioning or like, what if, and you said that to me, I think earlier on when I was the intern at your church and that having that kind of sparked my whole idea of wanting to do this podcast. And at the time, I didn't know it was going to be a podcast. Mm. But so kudos to you for just being true to your your heart, your word, at and what that person said to you. And then that way you instilled that into me, and I brought that to my Thanks. advisor Thank in you. the process. And then he was like, "Yeah, I agree with Kathy. You got to run and do that." And sometimes when you do ministry. You're so afraid because you have this passion, you have this desire of what you want to do, and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know the, there's no like neon lights shining like do this or go here. Or sometimes people say, oh, I hear God's voice. A lot of times I don't hear God's voice. I'm like, I don't know what what the hell's going on. Yeah. And but knowing what you have to do and then jumping off, I think a lot of times we forget to take that leap of faith, and sometimes that's. What you have to do, and you might crash and burn, or you might succeed. Well, tremendously. I had a, Thank you. I, I had that old guy. I um, I kind of did the same thing again when I decided to leave the Catholic Church and go into ministry mm-hmm. in a, as a pastor. And um, my last one of my last Sundays there, they asked me to give the sermon, which is really unusual because in the Catholic Church, generally speaking, women don't give the sermon. Mm-hmm. Although Joan of Arc was really different, and they did anyway. But um, so I explained to everybody kind of how this had gotten to the point where I was leaving and why I was leaving, and that it wasn't any negative thing against them. It was like following what I saw as God's call. And this old guy said to me afterwards, uh, this really old man, he said, You know, um, I want you to know I have done that in my life, and whenever God calls you to jump off a cliff, there's going to be somebody who catches you at the other end. And it's like, Oh. Cool. That's very good. You know, and I think the thing is, you've got to just, as far as you can discern what's the what you need to do, then you need to do it, and you'll never regret it because no matter what happens, you know, you followed 
what you're called to do is. And by call, I don't mean necessarily God. I mean, as a person of faith, I see that as God. But other people would just say, this is what I really am about. This is what I need to do. And that's great. I think, you know, that's what you that's what you got to follow because then you're never going to regret it, you know? Mm-hmm. Someone said to me once, make your decisions like if you were on your deathbed, what was it that you think you needed to do? Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great way to look at it. About, about where on the timeline was it that you two decided to leave the Catholic Church? Um, a long time later, because mm-hmm. this was like we left the convent together in 1986. Mm-hmm. Then we had these, we did foster care and stuff. We had these four kids. While still in the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, we okay. raised them all. I mean, and so I'm working for the Catholic Church at this point, like as a, um, it'd be like as a youth minister, as a, as a faith formation director. Okay. So I'm in charge of, at Joan of Arc, that was really a big church. And so they had like a thousand. 400 families so there's like 600 kids in preschool through grade six that i was in charge of 500 i mean it it depended on the year because i did it for like 20 years but it was it's so i had like 80 teachers i mean it was like a big program and so that was my full-time job and then carol's full-time job is being a nurse and so this is what we did for a long time and so then i left there in um 2009 that's when i was called a ministry at joan of arc I mean, Joan of Arc, at Parkway. Mm. So um, I had about five years before that. So I would say I was there about 15 years. When um, Mm. And then, well, the next thing was I was was, um, nominated for an award through the diocese. The diocese is like in the Catholic Church. That's an area. So Minnesota has maybe five dioceses. I don't remember exactly, but close to that. So the Diocese of Minneapolis-St. Paul. they have a thing where they give awards to um, excellence in Christian teaching. So catechetical leadership is what they call it. And so I was nominated for this along with quite a few others, and they give out six of them or eight of them or something. And so anyway, so I got one, and um, and I'd finished my master's by that time. And so and it's like looking, it's like, well, not only are you good at, you know, leading the Sunday school faith formation sacrament program, but... In your life, you're also kind of serving as a Christian example or something. And so anyway, so I and several others got this. And so it's announced in the Catholic paper. Then a little hate group at out of St. Paul that, like, their whole existence was to uproot gay people in the Catholic Church that were, like, in professional people in the Catholic Church, okay. wrote to the bishop saying, you can't possibly give this woman an award because, for goodness sakes, she's lesbian, and she doesn't even pretend she's not lesbian. And she doesn't not even, only is she, I'm sure they were all very secure in their sexuality, obviously. Yeah, their yeah. life mission was... They don't yeah. even pretend. Yeah. <laughs> right. And not only is she lesbian, but they're, she, you know, she considers herself married to another lesbian, and they have, they've got these four kids and of different races. And so, um, so the bishop wanted to not embarrass me and so he was just going to quietly withdraw it. And he really did think it would be embarrassing to me. So he really was trying to, I mean, that sounds kind of weird now, but like he really was trying to be a good guy mm-hmm. in his withdrawing it. Mm-hmm. But Joan of Arc knew about that, heard about that. And so they were like, what the hell? We're not, we're not standing for this. And so the day they gave this award to other people, they had like 300 people from Joan of Arc protesting at this place. Mm. And so it became a big deal Whereas it wasn't necessarily meant to be a big deal, but it became a huge deal because it got on TV and in the newspapers, and it continued in one form or another for several months. And so they, at one point, like, the chancery is where the bishop's office is. And so they had, like, this little group of 
20 people or 40 people or something walking around with signs saying, fire the sodomite, Kathy Itza. Good Lord. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's all like it's on the news and it's in the newspapers and it's in the Catholic newspapers. And so Joan of Arc then, they kind of doubled down on their, no, we stand for our gay, lesbian people and they're part of us and Kathy's done a good job and we love her and, you know. And so it was this big big deal and so we had tons of other churches would like send bouquets to us and um flowers and cards and and i personally got um like 300 cards of support from across the united states and and canada british and british columbia and you know and um it actually is like newspapers in finland i mean it was crazy and yeah and because it was so unusual and uh and so Joan of Arc took this really strong stance of support for gay, lesbian people, and for me in particular. But the the bishop was unfo- was needing to follow what his orders were from higher up, too. And so it was like, he's not trying to make a big deal of it, but he's like, he can't award somebody who's clearly taking a stance outside of Catholic teaching for mm-hmm. leadership in Catholic teaching, mm-hmm. you know? And so... But it just got bigger and bigger. And this group is just getting more and more full of hatred. And so they ended up papering church um, parking lots with this thing that looked like it was written from the KKK. It was like about Fire Kathy, the sodomite, the the sodomite stormtrooper of the, you know, she's going to seduce, teach all these terrible things to children. And, you know, it was just crazy. And it was, and it was, they papered it of the parking lot at Joan of Arc. And then we started getting calls, we meaning Joan of Arc, started getting calls from other churches. And while they were at mass, these guys would go along and paper their cars with these same things. And so it was just this big deal. And then it was like, our administrator was having lunch at Dayton's downtown, which at that time, and came out and it was part, it was all over the car at Dayton's. And so he's like, we need to do something. So they decided to hire a lawyer because it was like libel mm-hmm. and slander. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the lawyer took Maybe these. Too. Yeah. So the lawyer <laughs> took these these letters and went back to his law firm and was going to represent the church. And the law firm said, these are really scary. These, this looks like these guys are going to, you know, like any little nudge and they're going to go do something really crazy right. so they said we don't think you should do anything because um it might incite them to violence mm-hmm. and so it was like well okay what do we do now and i thought you know this little crazy group the only thing they're going to listen to probably is the bishop because the way that they're looking at things that he's the great authority so i wrote to the bishop and the bishop didn't know me at all and so I wrote to him and said, you know, we need to do something because this is not good for the church. It's not good for you. It's not good for me. This is just bad for everybody. And I got these little vulnerable kids at home that Mm. are mostly from situations that are violent or they're disabled or whatever. And this is really scary. And um, so he right away invited me to come talk to him. And I did. And it was a big deal. And um, he was great. And I brought pictures of my family. And I think I was the first um, gay person who was in a committed family relationship that he'd ever met. Like he might have known a gay priest here and there, but not somebody who this is making a normal life out mm. of things, you know. And so he ended by saying, you know, Kathy, you and I clearly disagree on this, but um, he said, I have great respect for you as a person, and and uh, if you've got anything you need, call me. I'm going to tell him to knock it off, and hopefully they'll listen. And anything that comes up in the future. Let me know. I'm on your side. He was great. And um, I think that really changed things. And he did. He told them to knock it off, and they stopped all the stuff. Wow. Yeah. 
And since then, he sent me a Christmas card every year. Wow. And then later on, um, one of my kids uh, ended up having leukemia, and he wrote us this like really beautiful letter and wrote to us a couple other times about how much he respects our family and prays for us. And Anyway, so that was kind of a nice deal. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But I think to continue the story, this guy was really pastoral. This was Bishop Flynn. And um, he was doing the best he could, I think, under the circumstances, to be faithful to his vows as a bishop. Um, he decided to retire. And the next fellow that was coming up was Archbishop Neinstedt, who kind of had a personal vendetta against gays. So as soon as it was announced that he was the new bishop, mm. the administrator, Joan of Arc, said, Kathy, um, you need to come up with a plan B, because mm. they had investigated how they could protect me if the bishop said you have to fire her or something. Mm-hmm. And they found out that really there's not a lot that they could do in mm-hmm. the Catholic Church hierarchy. And so they said, you know, we're just giving you a clear warning. We're going to do everything we can to help mm-hmm. you. But if it comes down to it, there's not a lot we can do. So think of a plan B just in case. Right. And that kind of shocked me because um, with my child having leukemia and with all of this stuff with, with the whole crazy gay thing and with the kids that we'd adopted and had disabilities and stuff, Joan of Arc had always been an extremely great church. They surrounded us with love. They helped us. You know, they paid for a ramp when my kids were in wheelchairs. I mean, they they were really stand-up people and had been all along. And I felt like I was doing a good job for the church and for the world in my in what I was doing. And so I was happy there. I was content. Mm-hmm. And um, But that kind of shocked me, like, oh, my gosh, what else would I do? And then I started thinking about it and I realized – I've always wanted to be a pastor. I've always wanted to be a pastor. And mm. I think that was behind my desire to be a nun, yeah. certainly my desire within the Catholic Church to be faith formation director, get the degree in ministry and theology. Like, I kind of had gone as far as you could, pretty much, as a woman in the Catholic Church. Mm. And it was like, I think that was what was behind it, was yeah. trying to find expression for this need for ministry. Makes and uh, not that that wasn't ministry, it is. All of these are ministries. But... I realized I really need to do this. Mm-hmm. And so um, then I looked, found the United Church of Christ, and um, like the social justice thing was just as good. I mean, just as committed to justice and certainly more liberal and progressive in many ways. And um, they said, you've already got a master's degree. You need like five or six more classes. And then Joan of Arc said, you know what, we'll pay for like half of those because it's not your fault you can't be ordained in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And you've done a great job we should help you out and so um so then i continued taking those five or six classes at night and in the evenings and um was able to finish it and end up serving parkway Mm -hmm. you mentioned a couple things like with the the hate group that kind of harassed you and Mm -hmm. um did you say it was a bishop who was like kind of obsessed with the he was yeah um what do you think do you have any thoughts on on because it's a common thing. Do you have any thoughts on where that fixation comes from? Is that is that uh, a a learned uh, like fear, or is it like just a, a common distortion of scripture? Because it, it seems to me of of all the things to obsess over or to put that much weight in from scripture, it just seems so arbitrary as far as like quantifiably how often it comes up or or, or, or how much. Focus is put on it. It's a little it. crazy. It's a little crazy. Do you think that that's just like a learned thing? In in my personal experience, it seems to me like a lot of times, especially like this came up in our – we've done a couple of interviews with uh, a man who, who goes to Revolution Church. 
uh, named Robert. He's been on a couple of, what, like three, mm-hmm. four sacred episodes talking about like gay conversion therapy and stuff like mm-hmm. that he's been through. Um, and especially in, in those stories, I feel like a lot of the times the people who are heading, kind of spearheading those movements um, are not comfortable with their own sexuality, you know, and, and maybe are projecting some self-hatred onto people who are openly what maybe they, they can't be open about in themselves. Um, do, you, do you think that that's a, a driving force or do you think it's, it's like just, it's a fear of the other or do you have any thoughts I think on it's that? all kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah. that is one really big theory that I've heard, of course, too, yeah. you know, and it's like, maybe it's true. I don't know. I think mm-hmm. in some cases it sure is. There is a whole, you know, but it's also so ingrained with um, God in people's image and church and their own masculinity or feminine, femininity. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's perceived as a big threat against, you know, if I'm a heterosexual man or woman, that has been for many years perceived as a threat mm. against my heterosexuality because they are the opposite, mm-hmm. you know? I think... Um, like if you're the other sort of thing? Or? It's like, yeah, but I mean, like, there's all these roots way back, like, actually, in Scripture, that's not what they were talking about. Like, there's right. this, you know, it's like, there, you know, you've got your verses in Deuteronomy and all of this, but it's like, um, historically... That was the most humiliating thing that a man could do to another man would be to, quote, treat him like a woman. Mm-hmm. And so if one one warring faction in the ancient world um, conquered another, the guys would rape the man mm-hmm. as, as the ultimate humiliation. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got a lot of scripture verses like, this is not how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. This is not like, you know, it's not a thing of faith to right. be trying to humiliate somebody and drive them into the ground, sure. you know, by mm-hmm. raping them and and totally decimating their masculinity and then it also there's other verses about um like spilling your seed Mm -hmm. because in those days they didn't know that that their female had an egg until like 1850 or something it's a crazy link like really because they couldn't see it and they didn't know it was there and so they thought that all of all of pregnancies was because man's seed would go within the woman's womb where it would just grow into a perfectly formed little man, but if the <laughs> if the breeze was blowing from the east, it, it, when when they conceived, it would be a girl because it wouldn't be quite perfect. Mm. So mm. so the idea of a man spilling his seed, as they would call it, was the same thing there as what we would now consider abortion. Mm-hmm. And you know that, of course, is controversial too. But this is in a small Jewish tribe that's constantly under the threat of, of ex- extermination. Sure, sure, sure. They're constantly. Being, you know, they're trying to multiply right. and grow because they're always in danger of being wiped out. Right. So it was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in your image of what it means to be a man uh-huh. and then, or a lesser woman, uh-huh. and that makes it even more so. So you've got all these thousands of years of this. And then church teaching by Catholic Church, and, and I'm using that first because that was the first one that was teaching about mm-hmm. the scriptures because mm-hmm. the others hadn't come along yet. Mm-hmm. Church teaching is based on the history of how things had been interpreted, scripture, and the sciences. Like, that's what comes with good good teaching. So all of the teachings are supposed to be based on these three things, mm-hmm. your important teachings. Well, in the last, and it, it's like crazy how fast this has moved, because until 1978, like the AMA, American Medical Association, and I don't remember, the other was like 86 or 82 or something, the American Psychological Association. Oh, yeah, it's like until the 70s and the 80s, it was considered uh, like a health, a disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, so you've got this scripture 
and scripture didn't start looking everybody thought scripture was literal until yeah. the protestant churches in about the 1880s 1890s started realizing it may not be literal there's historical things that that mm. made a difference here how it's interpreted mm. protestants started doing that in about 1880 and the catholic church the pope just said yes that's really real in 1940 so two branches of the three-way church that that church teaching comes up scripture for 2,000 years, people thought it was literal. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. That didn't mean the same thing back then as right. it meant now. So that's new to realize that. And then medically, the a- the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association didn't say this wasn't a disorder until the 70s and 80s right. of 1900. Mm-hmm. So you've got of this thing of three things, mm-hmm. two of them are now invalidated. Mm-hmm. We realize that medical sciences don't show it that gay and is is a problem right. and scripture doesn't either right uh, but the history of how it has been so that is a teaching that should theoretically change in the catholic church either sure. because yeah. it's not a valid way that it came to that anymore we yeah. realize mm-hmm. but for 2000 years that's what it was and then of course the rest of those protestants get our teaching originally from them and then do different things with it mm-hmm. but that's how it's got this long history of stuff sure yeah and then you've got the emotions of of masculinity and femininity and you've got patriarchy and leadership and what mm-hmm. does it mean to be a man mm-hmm. all of that stuff mm-hmm. gets in it so it's a ton of emotion if you didn't have the knowledge of the cultural context of like right if you didn't have all, all of this this knowledge and if you didn't have the um re- redactions i guess the the adjustments of the medical community saying going back right. and saying oh yeah. never mind this we were wrong if you didn't have all of that and you still knew that you are who you are how would that affect your faith? Like, would is question. your internal compass to where, like, even let's say if, if you have a dream and God themselves descends and says, hey, Kathy, it's a sin to be in love with a woman. Would you say, hey, God, like, you made me like that. I don't know what to do. Or like, this is right. kind of an abstract question. Well, it's but, not. It's a really, it's a normal question. Yeah. Because, um, the things that I'm telling you, I didn't learn. To, I didn't know that when I was 25. Sure, you know, it's like I learned that much later. So that is exactly what people my age were going through. Yeah, sure, you right, know? exactly. Yeah. And um, and people older, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. still are going through the same thing sometimes uh-huh. because they don't have the advantage of being able to study scripture and higher, you know, theology, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. to know this stuff, the history. Um, so that was my experience when I was in college. Was like, geez, right, I'm gay. Or at least by and um, what does that mean? Because I'm Catholic, and how do I do that? And I was starting to learn some of this. I mean, that was just that kind of theology was out there, but I didn't know it. I was young, you know, and I was starting to learn it. And one day I was praying about it, like, what do I do with this? And um, I had this sense of knowing, um, however you want to do that, that it doesn't matter who you love as much as that you love. Mm-hmm. That I, I realized very clearly, why would God possibly care what body it is mm-hmm. that the person I'm loving inhabits, whether it's a man or a woman? I think mm-hmm. God doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think God cares that I love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you had a vision that God did tell you that that was a sin, you'd be like, "That's not God." Is that, well, is that kind? Of, is that I didn't. I had a vision of the opposite. Well, yeah, but yeah, I'm so, saying in theory, like if if it was like if it was like if that would have been a big problem. If you did chase, <laughs> yeah, sure. If you did chase down the scripture and the yeah. the original language and the original context and the original culture and everything like that, would it still? 
I think that's where a lot of these people are. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. like because they don't have the advantage of being able to learn the history of it, the theology of it, the scriptures of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they're stuck. Yeah. It's like they're hearing this from parts of the church. They're seeing what they see in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking, oh, crap. Right. I'm screwed. Mm-hmm. You know? And so Catholics in that situation will say, well, okay, I guess it's okay to be gay, but I have to be celibate. Right. You know? And that's what they, some of them will believe. And um, then you get other people in other places with conversion therapy and stuff. And I think it's a it's a crazy way to try and live and really an oppressed way to try oh, and absolutely. live. But I was lucky enough to not have that experience mm-hmm. and to have encountered people that were loving and also progressive. And Yeah. One of the toughest thing, kind of jumping in, is what you were saying, Kathy, is just like the Bible doesn't say these certain things about homosexuality like people say like i have tons of i mean the way i was raised you know the way i was raised super like super pentecostal where it was like well it says it right here in this part of the old testament right here about being gay and of course i believed that when i was younger because who am i to to you know argue with my parents or to argue with the pastoral people but then the older i got and i've told people anybody of my friends or people who will listen one of the main reasons i walked away from evangelicalism is because i knew in my heart like Yes, I'm straight, but I knew I was an ally. I knew that it doesn't matter who you love. Mm-hmm. You know, like you were saying, love is love. Like God God doesn't care if you love someone, if you're a male to a male or a female to a female or if you're bi or whatever. And it, I had the awesome opportunity to go to seminary like so many people don't have that opportunity. And even when I had people teaching me hermeneutics, when they look at their hermeneutics, it, it's like – when you look at like the cultural context, when you look at how like the men would literally rape other men as an ultimate form of humiliation, and I feel like that is what the writers of those books and of the scripture were saying. It wasn't saying it is wrong to be gay. Right. In a loving context, it is wrong to rape someone for humiliation. And we still live like that in our culture now. It is wrong to rape anyone because it's humiliation, it's power, it's, it's all right. the things that we think are terrible. But yet you still have so many people who, within different streams of Christianity, who will be like, well, no, the Bible says it's wrong being gay. And like we just had our friend Jay Baker, who's pastors at Revolution, he's like, it's cherry-picking. Uh-huh. And he's like, unfortunately, we all cherry-pick certain things, but he's like, there's so many things that certain people, and I would say... I would say most conservative people, not all, but a lot of people, they'll cherry pick and they'll be like, well, you know, being gay is wrong, blah, blah, blah. But then they'll say like going to war and killing people or abortion is, you know, all these, well, they would say abortion is wrong. But I think that whole part of people having to look at scripture in the cultural context, why it was written, who it was written to, so many people forget that. And when you look at it in that context, I mean, to me, it's like God saying to me, like, hey, this is not wrong. We need to get off of this kind of topic, and we need to get off of that the whole ideology that that stuff is wrong. Yet, unfortunately, so many people within Christianity can mm-hmm. – I mean, that, that would be like a whole 10-hour podcast. My question yeah. for both of you that I was kind of dancing around is what if the hermeneutics did still – what if you got it down to its core? And what if the hermeneutics or, or God, if you believe that Scripture is literally breathed from – a, a, a conscious entity that we call God, what if that did say that it was wrong? Like, would you throw that away and follow what feels right to you? Uh, that's because I think because it's more I than would. that. Because it's also I like, have, like, because I think, I think you've got, you're following God, but then to me, 
you know God within yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're almost saying two different things. So yeah. what if yourself is saying one thing mm-hmm. and your ideas of God are saying another thing? Right. Mm-hmm. And that, I can't imagine how that would be mm-hmm. because I think that's how I do follow God, kind of. But I mean, but I think a lot of people are in that exact situation, mm-hmm. and that's where they're in all kinds of trouble mm-hmm. because they want to follow God, and that's not what they say is right, sure. and so then they don't know what to do, and that's mm-hmm. how you get like all kinds of abuses and addictions, right? And suicide, and you know, all kinds of self hatred mm-hmm. and terrible. Things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and if you're trying to toe that line, mm-hmm. then how are you going to react against other people who are gay? Right. You know, you're going to hate them. You're going to be like this little group was towards mm-hmm. me. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I was kind of asking myself the question. If, if God came to me and was like this and this, I'd be like, either either you're not God or screw you, God, because like that doesn't happen. Right. You know, but it's it, like, well, I think it's really hard. If God hard. is love, that's not love. You know right. I mean? So that's not But God. unfortunately, well, we get a lot of young people who are taught that is God. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, for sure. Totally. Then they're, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and the buzzword within a lot of podcasts that I listen to is deconstruction, where people have deconstructed sometimes all of their faith into being agnostic or atheistic or deconstructed that they had to find another church stream to denomination to follow like I did. Um, but so often I think people aren't just given that opportunity to deconstruct to to um like i I mean there's still people in my family you know a lot Mm -hmm. of people in my family there's still a lot of them who won't come to my service or like if i lead at a ucc church or somewhere else because they're like we we can't we can't not they support me but they can't get behind my theology right and because and some people it's not even like they can't think about or talk about it. It's just that their their faith has to fit in their worldview. And like we heard our friend Jay saying today, like Brendan Manning, who's a, who was amazing, had a quote that said, uh, "God created us in God's image, and we return the favor." Mm. And so I do think that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's like we say we have this conception of God, and God breathed all the scripture, whatever, and that. We are like, oh, well, you left us with this and told us to do this, but now we're going to put you in this box. And I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think we can do that in a whole host, whether it's about sexuality or, or the afterlife, whatever, you know, A through Z. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I think we do that same thing. Yeah. And I, I think it's much more positive and yeah. life-giving. But they would say probably their way is more positive and life-giving, mm-hmm. you know. But, I mean, we think we're following God and – in this progressive liberal way, mm-hmm. and so that's how we see God. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think all we can do is do the best we can with what we sure. got. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell people, even in my own family or friends, who are like, "Well, you're wrong," and blah blah blah. I'll be like, and, and the way I look at it is, I, I mean, God, I understand God in probably different ways than you both understand God or other people, and that's fine. That's the beauty of it. But I look at it and I say, if if what I believe in isn't based on Jesus' teaching, isn't based on God's love, like, I've thrown theologies away of, like, personally to me, and I have no problem saying it. Like, I don't really believe in hell mm-hmm. because the way I was taught was that there's this God, there's, you know, Jesus, who if you don't accept Jesus the way, well, first of all, you have to say that Jesus is a man, and that's a whole another thing. And then you have to say this prayer and do this, 
oh, but so many people are going to deny Jesus, and so they're going to go, you know, Jesus is going to send all these billions of people to hell. And what changed my opinion is when I had my daughter, mm-hmm. when I became a parent. And just the the amazing emotional, the love, the all the stuff that goes through being a parent. And I remember going to both my mom and my brother, who I love dearly, who vehemently disagree with me, and I said, I can't believe in a God that would send billions of people to hell because they didn't believe in him the right way. Right. I said, I just can't do it. I'm like, that makes no sense. And they were like, what's well, in the Bible? And I said, it might be in the Bible, but I think it's BS. Because I said, Jesus was totally all about love and turning the other cheek and love loving your fellow human being. And I said, as a parent, I can't do it. My child can't do anything that will separate me from, their, from our right. love. And I said, yes, if they do a stupid crime, are they going to go to prison and pay a fine? Yes, but I'm not going to not love them. I said, but yet we talk about a heavenly father that's like up in heaven, like, oh, if you don't do this, 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 and this, you're going to go to hell. And so for me, I've deconstructed that. I've deconstructed the part of like all about, you know, homosexuality where people are like, well, see, it says this and it says Mm -hmm. this. But going back to it, I, I think we're just so stuck in that. And I think it's. It's an important conversation, but sometimes I, I just don't even want to get in that conversation with people. Be, no, be with us, it's fine, but within like the kind of conservative family or in conservative stream, because it's like no one's ever, I feel like, going to switch their mind by just having a conversation, an argument, or a debate. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, and I feel like even if Christ came down and was like, hey, Joe Schmo, like, you're wrong, they would be like, I can't be wrong because. This is my worldview, and if Jesus and these doctrines and theology don't fit in this worldview, then I have nothing. Yeah. Sorry if I went a little off base, mm-hmm. but I felt I've the spirit people, moving. I've had people <laughs> say, like people that I've known at, who, I, as we get to know each other better, like especially people say of my parents' generation, mm-hmm. and they'll say, knowing you're like, like I told this woman my, my kind of my story. We're just getting to know each other, and she was just like. Later, she told me that changed her life yeah. view because yeah. Yeah. she had never thought that a gay person could be trying to faithfully follow God. Mm-hmm. And just like the fact that we were trying to do that mm-hmm. was like, what? I mean, like brand new idea, you know, that there can be faithful. And she came from an evangelical past, but it was like a brand new idea. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. I find that with people of an older generation, especially. It's not, there's never been an argument that I've gotten into that's changed something, but just through knowing yes, us, fully agree. you know, and, and our family and our kids and seeing yeah. how everybody treats each mm-hmm. other and like, oh my God, they're normal. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what's really changed a lot of people. And then I think this was really a big favor, the Catholic Church, like, because that whole thing with me got people talking on, uh, you know, outside of the church, you know, like, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I actually had one person say, like, our, um, our preschool director was at a park with some kids, and she she meets another mom and her kids, and they're just chatting, and she, like, where do you work? And she says, oh, I work at St. Joan of Arc. And this woman says, oh, isn't that that church that's, like, got that woman that's, like, in the, you know, in the news? And she says, yeah, I work with her, Kathy. She's a friend of mine. And she says, yeah, well, I didn't think, how could she be gay? Like, she has colored hair. I mean, she, you know, oh <laughs> she, has, she has highlights in her hair. Uh-huh. I didn't think, like, lesbians put highlights in her hair, <laughs> you know? And it was like, and, and it, but it's like that kind of conversation. Like, oh my God, she looks like she's a totally normal person, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, knowing people, people from, uh, yeah, from you know, groups that you've not been exposed to, 
exactly it's what changes hearts. Getting to it's that's exactly yeah. it. That's true. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. This is a good stopping point. Do you all right, keep going. I can go all night, oh, we baby. We could go all night. We could always do a part two later. Yeah. Sure. I think right now we should we we should be good. Okay. Be I think so. Thank you. Time. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything. That was a quick hour. That's yes, nice. it was. Wow. Cool. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun listening to your questions too. Oh, thanks. Till till next time, everyone. The end. Yeah. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN. That was a post-Christian podcast. Ha <laughs> ha